Thank you for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. For those who haven't yet heard, we've finally made our move into our new home in central Missoula. We'd love to see you Sunday mornings at 2010 Third Avenue West and hope you're blessed by this online resource. Uh, Lord Jesus, it is no small thing for us to encounter the word of God. And we pray that together as your gathered body today and those who are watching online, uh, that you would work mightily through what we just read, uh, through what was declared through the angels to those shepherds that Christmas morning, and that we, like them, leave this place pondering, thinking, wondering, worshiping, glorifying, and praising God. So Lord, we ask that all these things are accomplished according to your will. We pray this in your name. Amen. So, uh, in two weeks, on January 9th, we're going to start a new kind of short sermon series. Uh, but for the f- foreseeable future here at Sovereign Hope, we're working through the Gospel of Luke. And today we encounter what was just read for us, the story of Jesus's birth. But what's remarkable about Luke's history is that the signature stories that kind of occupy our imagination about Christmas are almost mentioned as mere happen chance in Luke's Gospel. It's truncated, super short. But if you ask most people, Christian or not, what the religious significance is about Christmas, most people have an awareness that Christmas is where Jesus was born, whether they believe him to be Lord or not. They understand the story of it, from nativity scenes to Christmas pageants and songs like We Three Kings or Away in a Manger, stories of inns turning away pregnant women, sheep and oxen standing idly by, Seemingly what's most emphasized in the Christmas story are all these accoutrements of the night of Christmas Eve and the story of Christmas morning. However, we have, what we're looking at today, Luke's account of Jesus' life. And Luke sent out to write the largest account of Jesus' life, or longest account of Jesus' life we have in Scripture, whose story reaches further back into Jesus' life than any of the Gospel writers, who includes more time talking about Jesus' early life than any of the gospel writers, and who includes more intricate details than any of the gospel writers. And yet, on the scenes that occupy our cultural imagination, this wordy wordsmith Luke spends 43 words. We read these 43 words in verses 6 and 7. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. That's all the words Luke used. And in Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan wrote this metaphor of one walking the road to heaven, and uh, Christian meets this man called Talkative. Talkative knew all of the words about religion and like to speak much about it. He knew that Jesus was born. He probably could have quoted to you the prophecies, many of which we read on Friday night that we'll see again this morning. He probably would have loved to debate with you that Jesus wasn't in fact born in December, but we think it was sometime in the spring that the nativity scene happened. But despite all of his knowledge and despite all of his words, talkative was unchanged by everything he professed to be true. While we might know the story, the language, and the events of Christmas, are we merely talkative? 
Or has the story actually changed our lives? The story of Christmas is far more than simply an answer to trivial pursuit on game night or the warm fuzzies of a woman holding her baby in a snowy manger morn and we import all these things into the narrative. It is amazing. Luke wants us to see something more profound, more heart-stirring, more worship-producing than any surface-level understanding we might have of that nativity. And while Luke spends very little time, like we just saw, 43 words on the story of Jesus' birth, he spends many words talking about the things that surround his birth. And that's what we want to look at today. We're going to first see the world into which Jesus was born, and then we're also going to see the words surrounding Jesus' birth. The words at Jesus' birth and the world at Jesus' birth take center stage in the book of Luke in hopes that you might move past a mere talkative understanding of this story, but that we might see what the shepherds heard. And so we're going to examine this story today and see the significance of these historic events in three ways. First, we're going to see in verses 1 through 11 the humiliation of the high places. Then in verses 10 through 14, we're going to look at that wonderful message the angels proclaimed, and we're going to see the harmony of heaven and earth. And then lastly, in seeing the response everyone has to this message, we're going to see the centrality of the gospel message. And so we're going to begin by our, looking at our first point today, the humiliation of the high places, where God did nothing we would have expected God to do, which was exactly what God was planning to do. And what I want you to notice as I read these first 11 verses of Luke chapter 2 is how much attention Luke is giving, how much Uh, emphasis he is putting on the world around Jesus, and we'll examine the significance of that, and then we'll examine the effect it should have on us. So read with me Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph went up from Nazareth, from the, up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. So what you'll notice in this passage is there's this intentional inversion Luke builds in. We start with the magnificent palaces of Rome and Caesar Augustus. And we go to a cave and a manger for there's no place in the inn. And then we're moved even further away into these lonely fields with shepherds at night. What we have happening in 43 short words in verses six and seven is the birth of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, wonderful counselor and mighty God. But... What Luke wants us to see is he was not born in Caesar's palace, but in a manger, since they couldn't even find a room. 
He was not heralded by the courts of Rome and the messengers and orators of that provincial power. He was heralded by degenerate, uneducated shepherds. Luke sets this contrast in the context by highlighting the ruler during this day, Caesar, Augustus, and his census. We just had a census in 2020. And generally, uh, in this ancient world, when censuses went out, it did a couple of things. One, it was to uh, uh, assess the tax value of the empire. It was a monetary thing. If you lived, you know the old joke, what are we guaranteed in life? Death and taxes. They for sure wanted the second, and if it comes at the first, then no big deal. And so they went to see who was going to give them money, and they were going to count that money. But then secondly, in the midst of this, there was an idea of uh, superiority. These emperors conducted these censuses because they wanted to see how big their kingdom was and how influential their rule was. And Luke is trying to impress on us the bigness of this census when it says that Caesar Augustus called the whole world to be registered. And we know he didn't call the whole world. He called the Roman Empire. But that day, the Roman Empire was the world. That was the power broker of the whole world. And Caesar Augustus was actually arrogant enough to think that he was that powerful, that important, that special. And it was under Augustus that the famous Pax Romana, Roman peace, flourished. He inherited Rome at its peak. It was the military power of the world. And as peace flourished, he wanted to bring Roman influence everywhere. And he conducted this grand master plan of building the foundation of what became most of the ancient wonders that we still see today in kind of that European world. Augustus was the leader of the most lucrative, safe, and mighty superpower of the day. But what we see in this text as, is that even as Caesar Augustus sought to boost his coffers and his influence, the king of kings was using everything he did to bring about the birth of Jesus. As Caesar attempted to assess the quantity of his people in order to tax them, God was sending the king of kings to be born in order to give his life for them. Because as Caesar was doing what Caesars do, God was using him to do what God does. For as Joseph was called from Nazareth to Bethlehem, prophecy was fulfilled. A prophecy we see in Micah chapter 5, verses 2 through 3. But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, I can't even say that, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return. As Caesar decreed, God worked to bring about the Savior. And what's interesting is we see not only the contrast of Caesar calling Joseph in order to bring the king of kings to Bethlehem, but actually the scene shifts even more. We see another glimpse into Jesus's world. There were shepherds outside the city, in the field, keeping watch by night. Each clause in Luke's sentence adds layers of insignificance to the narrative. 
If you're familiar with scripture, if you've read the Old Testament, you see that God frequently used shepherds in his redemptive story. And even more so in the New Testament, Jesus is the chief shepherd who cares for his flock. But shepherds in this Greco-Roman context were nearly as low as you could get on the cultural uh, social ladder. And the ladder here kind of is laid out for us. At the top, what was the most influential, the most powerful were the rulers and leaders of the day. There we have Caesar and Quirinius. Next would be the merchants and the priests. And they're notoriously absent from this text. Here, Jesus, the Messiah is born, but there are no priests around. And then under the merchants and the priests are the peasants to whom Mary and Joseph most likely belonged. But then underneath the peasants was a much more narrow social category. And that narrow social category was called the unclean and the degraded. And these shepherds belonged to that category. And they were kind of a two for one, for they were both unclean and degraded. Their job was of less social significance than the peasants. They were considered so low in that social order that their testimony was not admissible into courts of the day. But on top of that, they were ceremonially ceremonially unclean. The shepherds were not allowed to participate in many of the religious events of the day because they couldn't keep up with all the legalistic hand-washing rituals that the Pharisees had put on those who followed Yahweh. And Jesus will talk more about that in the book of Luke. And so as they were outside socially, they were also outside religiously. They couldn't come to God and they couldn't be with others. And yet it was to these lowly, unclean degenerates that the message of Jesus Christ was first proclaimed. Rome had all the fanfare. Rome liked to make a big scene. When anything important was happening, they wanted you to know that it was happening to them. But here it wasn't to the rhetoricians of Rome or the heralds of the kingdom, but to lowly shepherds. You see, Luke's gospel is filled. We've seen this. We're in chapter two. We've seen it all throughout and we'll see it as we continue. This inversion of a social order. God is generally working and laboring alongside those whom the world casts aside. And while our culture today loves this inversion, we think of it exclusively politically, we need to think about it in a way which is distinctly Christian. In the birth of Jesus, God embarrassed and shamed the places of typical power and significance. And so what effect does that have on our hearts? As we continue to see this inversion happening, throughout the gospel, what do we do with it? I'd point out for two things. First is that this humiliation reminds us that none of us come to Jesus with anything. We might think we come to Jesus as Caesars or as saints, but we all come as sinful shepherds, unclean in our sin, separated from the presence of God with nothing to offer on our own. This is true for anyone who comes to Jesus. Whether you were raised in a Christian home or from a home that lived furthest away from any Christian influence, to come to Jesus is to come with nothing. It's actually those we see in the book of Luke who think they have grounds for Jesus, who think they have deserved enough, know enough, earned enough, or become holy enough that they are actually the furthest from him. It is you who feel entitled that miss the wonder of this birth. 
The good news of Jesus is for those who realize that apart from him, they stand in darkness on the outskirts of everything that's good. And the redemption of those who come to Jesus doesn't mean we automatically go from the pasture to rampant popularity. But what we hear in the message of the gospel changes us. Our value, when declared to us in God's wonderful word when we were far from God, is now defined by our doctrine of what Jesus has done to save us based off of his might, his obedience, his perfection, not our own. And so when we see this inversion, we come humbly to this king, realizing we have done nothing to deserve it. But secondly, this humiliation reminds us of how we ought to humbly recalibrate our hopes. It's never been clearer than in this text that the hope of God circumvents the traditional hopes of this world. All of the things we thought God would move in, all of the places we thought God would shake, all of the tools we thought God would use, he refuses to use. And this takes conscious effort for those who follow Jesus. Because what we tend to do is we don't say we don't need God anymore, we'll find hope in the world. But instead, we always have this temptation to take worldly hopes and to say that we are worshiping God with those. We baptize false hopes as Christian hopes. And in so doing, we actually take the feet out of the hope of scripture. For instance, this past month on the same Sunday, one church in Texas invited former President Donald Trump to speak on a Sunday. Another church in LA invited a Democratic Congresswoman to speak on a Sunday. And both turned that Sunday service in both churches from both sides of the political aisles into a campaign rally for a political hope of a nation. Now I wanna be clear here. I'm not opposed to Christians being engaged in politics. In fact, I think Christians should be more engaged in politics as Christians. We have an obligation to speak where scripture calls us to speak. I have no problem with Democrats and Republicans being together in the same church so long as we agree where scripture speaks clearly that we put ourselves in submission to God's words. But we should always be cautious of taking pulpits meant to proclaim the exclusivity of Christ the King and using it as a pulpit to proclaim the hope of human kings. Consider the warning of the Lord in Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 through 24. Behold, the, oh, no, not there. We'll start in verse 23 where I said, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who, practice, who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. This is not a political problem. It's not a Republican problem. It's not a Democratic problem. It's not an independent problem. It is a human problem to want to find exclusive hopes in things that are not the Lord. To find comfort in Caesar's kingdom or in, or in the protection he provides. But here we see so clearly that the Christian hope is hope in God exclusively. And God might at times work through means, but our hope is never in those means. Our hope is not even in our responsibility. 
Our hope is in the God who cares for all things and a God who often flies in the face of what is powerful in this world so that when all is said and done, it is clear who God is and what he's done to save. And here in the birth of Jesus, Luke wants us to see the humiliation of the high places so that we might see ourselves and our savior as God would have us and be exclusively committed to him. But now I wanna focus not on the world of Luke's gospel uh, story here, but on the words of it. Here, read with me what was spoken to these degenerate shepherds in Luke 2, verses 8 through 14. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And so here we see something that hasn't been uncommon for us in the book of Luke so far, and that is God speaking to people through angels. And we've seen this typical pattern. Angel shows up. Man is fearful. Angels comfort man with words of grace. And we've seen this before, but this is so distinct because in the angel appearing to Zechariah, we saw the promise of the gospel to come. In the angel appearing to Mary, we saw the promise of God with us, but it's here to these shepherds who at this point had nothing to do with the story. Their wife wasn't getting pregnant. They weren't becoming pregnant in their virginity. They were fully apart, but it was when the angel appeared to them that the gospel has been most clearly proclaimed in the book of Luke. And this is the theme. This theme of the gospel message is our second point today. The substance, the thrust of what the angels are saying is nothing short of the harmony of heaven and earth. In the birth of Jesus Christ, the great divide between the Lord of heaven and the man of earth was being bridged. And this bridging from sinful people to a perfect God is the good news of the angel. And the angel opens up saying literally, fear not for I'm gospeling. Fear not for I'm good newsing to you great joy for all the people. And what is that good news? That unto you is born this day a savior who is Christ the Lord. This message is so significant for us today, and it was so significant for those who heard it in that day. Jesus is given here three titles. He is a savior. He is Christ, which is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah, which was a distinctly religious word. And he is also the Lord. And this idea of Lord kind of cuts both ways to both the Jewish and the Greek readers. For up until this point, whenever Luke spoke of the Lord, he spoke of God the Father. And so Jews reading this are seeing that this Jesus is part of God. This Jesus is equally divine with the Father. This is the Lord. This is the hope of the Old Testament. But then to the Greeks, the idea of Lord was almost an exclusively human and political understanding Caesar Augustus at this time had begun to call himself Dominus et Deus, which is both Lord and God. 
And these two titles were so significant to his inflated view of self because he was the divine God who ruled men as Lord in a perfect way. But it's here in a manger declared not to the council of Rome that God's Messiah, the Lord who is God, was born. For Greeks longing for a ruler, a child was born. For Jews longing for Yahweh to come and deliver them, a child was born. The God who was the divine above had condescended in human flesh to be Lord below. You see, the Greeks like us today, that's broadly speaking, the non-Jews, they've found their, their social standing and influence as the greatest indicator of your true value. Kind of like how we have influencers today where if you've got lots of people following you on social media, you have more of a voice, you're more in tune with the truth than anyone else. That's not new, that's been around for a long time and that's how Greeks thought. The more popular you were, the more powerful you were, the more influence you had. And so actually what happened in the early days of Christianity is that those who were from Greek backgrounds wrestled with the idea of the incarnation of Jesus, that God would be born as a human, and more than that, as a human child. You see, for the Roman culture, which was ripe with demigods and men like Augustus who claimed to be God, if you really were God and you really wanted to be worshipped, then you should do something fantastic. You should appear as the sun or as the moon or some mythical beast that comes out of nowhere to show that you are real but distinct from everything else. And so Athanasius, who was an early church pastor who pastored Christians who were and or people looking at the gospel, wrestling with this idea of how God could become a man and still be glorious, he helped them to understand this a little bit more. He said, if Jesus came only to be put on display, then he certainly could have chosen something more majestic than an infant. But he said, the Lord came not to be put on display, but to heal and to teach those who were suffering. You see, creation, the sun, the moon, the stars, the elements of the world do not need to be redeemed for they never sinned but image bearers, humanity, we sinned. We are the problem. And we look out in our world and we see the problems of creation. We see earthquakes and we see tsunamis and tornadoes and ice storms and unplowed parking lots. We see the brokenness of creation, but creation's brokenness stems from our brokenness. The moment you turn on the news and you see some catastrophic event in the Midwest, which is where everything catastrophic seems to happen, be reminded that your heart is more of a disaster. That Paul tells us in Romans that creation is groaning because of your sin and it is anticipating your redemption. And so because of this, Jesus being born as human took the form and substance of the one he came to heal and to save. He took the substance of meek humanity, fully God and fully man, because he wanted to be worshiped as a savior. 
That's the significance of Christ who is the Lord and is our savior. Jesus came from heaven and earth so that those burdened and bound by their own sin might be set free by their savior. And what we need to see here before we move on in the book of Luke is if you are one who has always wondered who God is, who is Jesus, how is he different from anything else, what Luke is showing us is that you can never understand the position or the preeminence of Jesus as Lord unless you see him as savior. We can only know Jesus as he is if we see him as the savior he came to be and are saved by him. Jesus is the radiant king because he is the saving Lord. You see, Jesus can be Lord forever. He has been. He is objectively the eternal uh, son of God. That doesn't change He could have stayed that without ever being savior, but Jesus can never be savior if he's not also your God. And this message, the message of the Lord come to save, heaven itself exploded. Look back at Luke 2, verses 11 through 14. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And so here we see angels so excited in heaven. It's it's like they weren't even invited to the field that night. But this first angel said it and they show up like, we're here too, like let's party. And the declaration of their joy is both heavenward and earthbound. It is glory to God in the highest. This is a heavenly message. This is that the eternal son of God with whom God the father was well pleased for all eternity, he has come. This is heavenly news in which the angels draw deep delight. But this was earthly news. Peace on earth among those with whom God is pleased. The beautiful result of the work of this Messiah is that through his salvation from sin, the God in heaven can be pleased with the children of earth. Where sin stands between us and God, there can be no peace. But where sin is removed by the blood of Jesus, we experience peace with God to all who are saved by him. And it's here in this message of salvation in Jesus Christ that we encounter a peace that far outreaches the Pax Romana of the day. Rome has fallen and that Roman peace has ended, but the peace of all who come to the Father through Jesus Christ has endured. Consider what Paul says in Romans chapter five, verses one and two. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. If you've ever wondered if there is an ability for you to have peace with God, if there was ever anyone who could accept you, knowing your constant sins, your constant weaknesses, and the deepest desire of your heart, here is the message of peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And here is the kicker. 
Not only do you get peace with God the Father, you get his pleasure. That God is pleased with us. We can have peace with all sorts of people, can't we? I have peace with people in my neighborhood I've never met. They've never offended me. We peaceably wave at each other. But to have pleasure, that's something special. That's something that involves an intimate relationship with someone. And the peace with Jesus is so strong that God is pleasurable towards us because he sees us robed in Jesus's righteousness. Sometimes we like to divide the idea of Jesus as God and Jesus as Lord. In college, there are all these people who grew up in the church and they said they were a Christian, but then they have this, quote, lordship moment where Jesus became their Lord. But we see in this text is Jesus cannot be your savior without being your Lord. You cannot be with God the Father. You cannot have his pleasure unless Jesus is also your Lord. And then when this peace happens, when you realize the cosmic reconciliation that has happened in that place, you rejoice because it is a joy that causes the heavens to exclaim the beauty of this gospel message. And it's now we turn to examine the human response. We saw the divine response. Angels rejoice. What's the human response to this gospel message? And as I read this passage, I want you to notice and to pay attention to the message the angel plays or the role the message the angel plays in the following narrative. Where is the word spoken by the angel constantly showing up in this text? And read with me Luke 2, 15 through 21. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go over to Bethlehem. And see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. At the end of eight days... When he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So here we see our final point this morning, the centrality of the gospel message. And I want you to, we're gonna role play a little bit here this morning. I want you to put yourselves in the shoes of the shepherds here in this text. It's the middle of the night. The stars are brightly shining. That's all they knew. They knew nothing else was happening. They didn't have those cues that we have in our songs. And all of a sudden, an angel appears. And the angel begins to speak to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them visibly. And then, after that angel spoke, multitudes of angels all singing, all declaring, all the more glorious in the world's greatest praise chorus. And the angels said, we're gonna give you a sign. And what was that sign? A baby. An ordinary baby, wrapped in ordinary cloth, laid in ordinary manger. If you wanted a sign... What would you prefer? 
Ellie Fow is in labor this morning. There's a baby, hopefully, Lord willing, going to be born to our church today. There's gonna be more babies born in the hospitals across Missoula tomorrow. Babies are completely ordinary. (laughs) If God said, pick your sign, infant wrapped burrito style, or the heavens splitting and gazing into heaven itself, which would you choose? I know for me, what would stand out most and provide me the greatest conviction is the miraculous events that night in the field. But what stood out to the shepherds was not the messengers, was it? It was the message. They left with haste to see the baby. Everything they saw in that field was an appetizer to what they were about to see, robed in ordinary flesh. Specifically, to see in verse 13, they made haste to see this thing. And this word, the Greek word behind thing, actually shows up three times in our text today, and that word is rhema. And it means, it can be translated as thing, but more precisely, it's a word or a saying. That word rhema is actually where we get the idea of rhetoric, of words being spoken and the skill that accompanies that. And the rhetoric of the angel, the rhema of the angel was so powerful that it changed the perspective of the shepherds so much so that they were more amazed at beholding the baby than beholding the heavens. The infant, because of the power of the message of the angels, became the wonder that captivated the shepherds. Why? Because of all of those things that the angels said were true, there was nothing in the world more spectacular, more radiant, more praiseworthy, or more astounding than that little infant baby wrapped in cloths and laid in a manger. Furthermore, if you left that scene and you went to go tell people what had just happened, what would you communicate? Most of us would describe that crazy thing that just happened in the field. We would spill our words, right? We finished Revelation this week in our Bible reading plan. John is using lots of words to try and explain what he saw in these visions, We would empty the dictionary, trying to say, well, it wasn't just the glory of the Lord shining, shining, being seen, having psalm. It was was like, you know, like all these crazy words that we're going to use. Like John, like it was translucent like gold, which doesn't make sense, but that's the point. We would talk about these experiences, which were astounding, But what I want you to see is is we're going to slow walk through what the shepherds saw was of greatest significance that night. And the glory they saw was the glory they heard in the gospel message. Verse 15, the shepherds went to Bethlehem to see this ramah, this saying which the Lord had made known to them. Verse 17, when the shepherds saw the child, they made known to them this rhema, this saying which had been told to them concerning the child. Verse 18, all who heard it, which is that which was just told to them, wondered. But Mary, verse 19, treasured up all these rhemata, 
all of these sayings, all of these words, pondering them in her heart. Verse 20, the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they heard and seen as it had been told to them. What was of powerful witness to the shepherds, of wonder to the bystanders, and treasured by Mary, resulting in glory and praise, was not simply what happened, but that it happened according to the word of God. They did not merely worship and what they saw and heard, they worshiped that it happened just as God said it would, that God's word had proven true and that true word was better than anything they could ever imagine. Our eyes need help to see things as they are. From a human perspective, we are going to focus on the angelic messengers and on Caesar's palace. From a human perspective, Glory is hard to find in this text in contrast to where God actually put his glory. Human eyes would write their own story, a different story of this evening. But if we are given ears to hear God's description of these events, we marvel at it in a saving way. Human eyes would find all the splendor in the field and we find the baby to be just that. But when God, through his word, communicates with us and recenters us on what is truly glorious, we worship what we hear when we see it in our lives. What Mary treasured up in her heart was the message of the angels that born that day in the city of David was a savior who is Christ the Lord. When we sing, as we did last Friday, O Holy Night, we remind ourselves, oh, hear the angels' voices. The scene at the manger is nothing without the message of the manger. Jesus can live, and Jesus can be obedient, and Jesus can and is and will always be God, but that is of no benefit to you if you do not hear the message of that savior. The glory of the Lord showed up in that field. Luke wants you to know that. But what he wants you to see more clearly is that by the end of this story, the glory of the Lord is most clearly seen in the gospel message of Jesus Christ. There are two places in the Old Testament where God's glory appeared most frequently. The first was this one-time event at Mount Sinai where God entered into covenant with his people and the glory of the Lord descended like fire on the mountain. The second is in the tabernacle, in the temple where God's presence dwelt among his people. But it's here in Jesus Christ where the covenant of God's word and the presence of God display glory in an unparalleled way. This unique combination of the word of God bound in the presence of God is what the whole Old Testament was pointing to. We have seen prophecies so far in the book of Luke of John the Baptist proclaiming the Messiah who had come. And look at how this story of John the Baptist and the Messiah that's going to come combines the word and the glory in the presence of God. In Isaiah chapter 40, verses three through five. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. 
Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. So that's talking about what John the Baptist is going to do. And what follows? And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. We all long to behold glorious things. If you want to see the glory of God, then you must realize that God's glory is most clearly revealed to those on earth in the message of Jesus Christ, who is our Savior, Christ the Lord. That's it. For those here on earth, glory does not exist apart from that. There's nothing more compelling, more witness-worthy, or worship-producing than that. If you want to stand in awe, if you want to be Christian, this story humbles ourselves to put on eyes of faith. It calls us not to see our world as our eyes see it, but to hear our hope as God declares it. It requires us not to behold the angels, but to believe their message. This is the first point of application in closing that the message of the gospel bids us to go to Jesus. Just as was declared to the shepherds, for unto you a child is born. When the shepherds heard the message, they saw what seemed like the greatest sign in the world in heaven's course. And they didn't sit back and say, that's good enough for me. I believe it. I believe a child was born. I believe he's Christ the Lord. But instead, in their belief in the message, what did they do? They went to Christ. They were moved to leave behind their vocations. They were in the field that night tending their flocks. They were not just sleeping. They were not camping. They were working. And the gospel called them to leave everything behind for an infant. How much more is it our privilege to leave behind our lives, our false idols, and our incomplete saviors, not for the infant in a manger, but for the risen, resurrected king in all of his glory. This message means nothing if you stay in the field. You must come to this Jesus in faith. You must move towards him. You cannot sit idly by. You come to Christ and you return differently worshiping and glorifying the Lord. But secondly, for those who have left everything and come to this Savior who is Christ the Lord, do you ponder this reality in your heart? Those who heard it, we see active words in this text. They wondered at it. Mary treasured it and stored it up. The shepherds considered everything in light of God's fulfilled word and it led them to worship and to glorify God. And so there's this beautiful thing when Luke is doing, when he says, Mary marveled at this, when people wondered at this. He's not just giving us detail, though it's true, but it's to produce this rhetorical effect in you. What do you think? What do you wonder at? What do you ponder? 
The truth is everything we try to do as followers of Jesus are only things which God can do. We cannot repent on our own. We cannot believe on our own. We cannot utter a syllable of worship to a song on a screen on our own if God did not do it. But the beauty of the gospel is that when we rejoice in it at all, in the simplest moment of worship, we rejoice in the power of God's word to do exactly what God's word promised to do. When we come to God and experience peace and pleasure, we rejoice that it is exactly as it has been told to us, that the gospel proves true. When we choose to put away sin and find it possible by the power of the Holy Spirit, we rejoice that it is exactly as it has been told to us because God's word in the gospel proves true. When we put on lives of holiness and righteousness and find it to be deeply freeing, we glorify God that it is exactly as it has been told to us, the gospel proves true. When we worship Jesus and find him immensely satisfying, good news and great joy to all people, we celebrate it exactly because it is as it was told to us. God's word proves true. Every moment of worship, every syllable uttered in praise, every sin cast aside, every moment of holy living that we do, we do because God's word has proved true and we wonder. So let us today, this morning, conclude our time in worship, not only praising God that Jesus has come, but that Jesus has come to be and to do just as God has said. And in this message is great joy for all people. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have spoken. That to those who have had since birth deaf ears and dead hearts. Beginning in the first pages of scripture, you spoke. But Lord, we thank you even more that in addition to your written word, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he came that he might forever heal our ears and restore our hearts, for he is our Savior, Christ the Lord. Let us marvel at this message which saves all who believe, that Jesus Christ is everything we've been hoping for, that he has done everything required to save sinners and restore us to God, and may we go forth amazed worship-filled, glorifying you in everything you have done for us in the person and the message of Jesus Christ. We pray this in your name, amen.